Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm ecstatic that you're listening this morning. Well, I hope you caught last week's interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, who leads Reasons to Believe. You can go to godsolutionshow.com under the Past Shows tab and find that interview if you missed it. Well, this week, we're going to be finishing up with our second part of that interview, so don't miss it. It's going to be a great interview, and I'm so glad that you're tuned in again to hear it. Astronomer and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries and talking about how those really are compatible with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating via a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. His books include Why the Universe is the Way it Is, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, and Navigating Genesis. I'm currently reading his most recent revision of A Matter of Days, Resolving a Creation Controversy. Find out more about Dr. Ross at reasons.org. Here we are picking up with part two of the interview with Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. And last week, he began to talk a little bit about his view of creation and creation being created by Jesus Christ, his willingness to state that unabashedly. And he also talked about his willingness to pinpoint older dates. Now, some of you in the audience might be thinking, wow, if you believe that this earth is older in 6,000 years, you are an evolutionist. Now, I've always said, I am going to be careful to be humble about how old the universe and earth is, whether it's young, whether it's old. I've kind of maintained an approach of humility on this show. But one thing that I think is necessary is to engage the scientific community on their level and to be willing to discuss these dates and to even discuss them from a Christian perspective like Dr. Ross began to do on the show last week. So, Dr. Ross, welcome back to the God Solution Show. Well, thank you. As I was saying, we were talking about these older dates for the universe, and I think where we get the younger dates from most Christian perspectives and circles is by adding up genealogies in the Bible. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.4 to avoid discussions of endless genealogies, and he admonishes Titus in Titus 3.9 to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. How do you think these commands of Scripture relate to the current old earth, young earth debate? I think they relate quite well in the sense that the genealogies were never intended to give us a calendar. Uh, they were intended to make theological points. I mean, every genealogy in the Bible uh, leaves certain generations out. Uh, and really, the theological issue is pay attention to what names are included and what names are not included. Notice some genealogies make a point of mentioning women. Some genealogies make a point of mentioning Gentiles. And it's basically making the point that a gospel is for everybody. It's not just for Jewish men. It's for men and women. It's not just for Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles. And so the inclusiveness of the, the Christian message comes through loud and clear through the genealogies. Uh, but we also need to appreciate that uh, this is uh, Hebrew, and Greek and not English. And in Hebrew, the word for father is identical to the word for grandfather, great-great-grandfather, etc. Likewise, the word son. And so, uh, you know, you, you really just can't add up the years in Genesis 5 and 11. However, you can come up uh, with a relatively crude calibration, which is something we've done at Reasons to Believe, because you can take the genealogy in Genesis 11, which gives you 10 names, 
from Noah uh, down to Abraham. By the way, the Genesis 5 genealogies also gives you 10 names, and that's typical of genealogies. They tend to put equivalent numbers of names in different sets of genealogies. So there's way more than 20 uh, individuals uh, in the uh, uh, genealogy, but those are the 20 that are mentioned. And, uh, but we know roughly the date when Abraham was alive, both from biblical records and extra-biblical records. He lived roughly 4,000 years ago. And it tells us in Genesis 10 that the world was divided in the days of Peleg. And Peleg is a fifth name mentioned from Noah down to Abraham. And uh, we believe that's a reference to the breaking of the great land bridges during the last ice age. And so that gives you a rough date for the flood and a rough date for when Adam and Eve were created. And I've written a book, Navigating Genesis, where I make the point, if you look at the textual details in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 8, it's clear that both the Garden of Eden and the flood event took place during the last ice age. Now, this does tell us that humanity is relatively recent. We're not talking millions of years ago. We're talking a few tens of thousands of years ago uh, for Noah and for Adam and Eve. And so, yes, I'm an old Earth creationist. I believe the Earth and the universe are billions of years old, but I believe that humanity is relatively recent, only tens of thousands of years ago, and that all human beings are descended from one man and one woman, Adam and Eve, that God specially created uh, just a few tens of thousands of years ago. And I think this is important because this is a place where younger creationists and older creationists can agree that humanity is relatively recent and that humanity was specially created and that we're not talking about God uh, bringing about life through evolution. It's God directly intervening through special creations uh, to give what we see in Genesis 1, a progression of life from creation day one to the creation day six. So in a tiny window of time, we can have humans with a civilization and technology they need to take the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world. And that's exactly the point of the gospel, is to take Christ to the world. Now, I just want to clarify for our audience, you mentioned that you're an old earth creationist. Now, there are those out there, and I know that you know this better than I know this, that would think, man, those two things are not reconcilable. You can't possibly be an old earth creationist. Again, just for the record, you are not an evolutionist in disguise trying to sneak that into Christianity, but you're a true creationist that believes that God did this over a longer period of time, correct? That is correct, and it's based on what I noticed even at age 17 in Genesis 1. Uh, we got the word day used in three different ways. On creation day one, is talking about days and nights. So that's the use of the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four talks about seasons, days, and years. So that's the word day used for 24 hours. Then Genesis 2-4 uses the word day to refer to the entire creation week. And there's the use of the word day for a significant passage of time. Later, when I looked at the Hebrew lexicons, I recognize that the word yom that's translated as day from the Hebrew has four distinct literal definitions. Part of the daylight hours, all the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, and a long but finite period of time. So I have no problem signing a doctrinal statement that I believe that God created in six literal days. 
but the Hebrew word for day has four different literal definitions, and I'm persuaded by the text that it's six consecutive long periods of time, not six consecutive 24-hour periods. And even when I first read the Bible, that seemed clear to me uh, for two reasons. There's no evening and morning for the seventh day, and three texts outside of Genesis tell us we're still in God's seventh day. And then you have both the human male and the human female created on the sixth day, but in Genesis 2 we have a significant passage of time described in the text between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. And if the sixth day and the seventh day are long periods of time, the grammatical structure in Genesis 1 would tell us all the creation days are long periods of time. So I've long argued for the need for humility, like I mentioned earlier, and you do the same in your book. What has been the result of a lack of humility in this debate? Well, um, non-Christians watch us, and when they see us Christians uh, you know, debating one another, uh, not in a charitable way, uh, where there's you know, vicious attacks and hard words being exchanged, they say, are we going to trust these people to help us be reconciled with our issues? You know, it tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 18 to 20, that we're ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors to call people to make their peace with God. And what I tell Christians is, non-Christians watch us to see how well we do at making peace with one another. Or as Jesus said, they will know, referring to unbelievers, they will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. So I think it's crucial that when we Christians debate one another, and I think that's important. Uh, you know, Paul said it's, it's good that there's divisions among you. It's important that we discuss our differences. That's how we learn. But we need to do it in the spirit of love. And with respect to the young earth, old earth debate, that frequently has been missing. Absolutely. And you are acutely aware of that, obviously, from your many years of ministry. But you shared a story in your book about how you were accused of denying scriptural inerrancy at the first conference that you spoke at concerning this topic. Is that correct? That's correct. And I was a bit naive because, you know, coming from Canada and not meeting Christians for the first eight years of my walk with Jesus Christ, I assumed everybody understood that these days in Genesis 1 had to be long periods of time. Uh, but when I had my pers uh, first public event in San Diego, California, uh, a bunch of men after my talk came up to me and said, why didn't you mention the other interpretation of the text? And I said, well, what is this other interpretation? And uh, I was quite surprised that there were people actually thought that these days were 24 hours. To me, it seemed clear that that simply wasn't possible. Uh, and uh, they got quite angry because uh, they thought, hey, the only way to read the text is at the 24 hours. So, uh, but as I explain in my book, this is not an issue for biblical inerrancy, and it's not even a salvation issue. When you read the early church fathers, what they stressed about Genesis 1 is who creates and how he creates. They really don't deal with when he creates. It's not a salvation issue. So in one respect, why are we getting angry with one another? Uh, this is not a significant point. But actually, if you read church history, the church is always divided and bitterly divided uh, over the non-essentials of the Christian faith. So in that sense, it's not surprising. And that's sad. So just for the record again, because I know there are those in the audience that will think you can't possibly believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. 
Well, well, moreover, I don't think you can hold the biblical inerrancy from a young earth perspective. You might be able to do it if all you look at is one creation text. So what I tell audiences is not enough to take the Bible literally. You have to take it literally and consistently so that all 66 books are saying the same thing. And my problem with the young earth interpretation, it actually pits different books of the Bible against one another. And I've actually seen that in debates I've had with young earth creationist leaders where they'll basically say, well, uh, Proverbs doesn't count, Job doesn't count, uh, Psalms doesn't count, because those are poetry. And, you know, from my understanding of biblical Hebrew, uh, biblical poetry is a very powerful tool that God uses to communicate truth. I mean, look at the book of Isaiah. Uh, the most specific didactic teachings we have on the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, are in the poetic passages of Isaiah. So I think we need to give serious uh, authority to all the books of the Bible, poetry and prose, not just the one text. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to see a list of the stations that we're on and to catch past shows and things like that. We're interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. Thanks so much for tuning in. So what biblical evidence, you touched on this a bit, but what biblical evidence supports your view? Well, for example, you've got John 5, Psalm 95, and Hebrews 4 all saying we're in the seventh day. And if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, there's an evening and a morning for the first six days, meaning that each one is a start point and an end point. But notice that the text deletes a reference to the seventh day having an evening and a morning. That's because we're still in the seventh day. And the text tells us that during the seventh day, God ceases from his work of creation. And when I read that as a 17-year-old, it answered for me the problem of the fossil record enigma. The fossil record enigma is that we see all this evidence for speciation, new species of life coming into existence before humanity, and virtually none afterwards. When I read Genesis 1, it answered that enigma. We see it before humanity, because those are the six days that God creates. We don't see it during the human era, because that's the period of time when God ceases from his work of creation. And as uh, Jesus points out, it doesn't mean that God stops working. It's just that he shifts his work from creation work to redemptive work. And I think that's crucial, too, because wherever you see a text in the Bible, a significant text that deals with creation, you also see the doctrine of redemption. And that God's works of redemption actually precede his works of creation. So I think the way to understand creation theology is to put it in a redemptive context. So you describe in your book how early missionaries to China saw how the young earth interpretation stifled their ministry. Will you elaborate? Well, that's because they had genealogies, uh, which put Chinese uh, in the land of China well before 6,000 years. Uh, they had astronomical records that went back. So they said, you know, this teaching we're hearing can't possibly be correct because our own calendars tell us uh, that we Chinese have been here longer than that period of time. That was so one pretty, of the... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that was one of the articles that I found on your website was reconciling these five different people groups, if I'm not mistaken, that have written history that predates the young earth interpretation of 
scripture, correct? Well, for example, you got the Heidi Indians in uh, the Queen Charlotte Islands who, who made totem poles. And, uh, you know, the, the totem pole uh, carvings are like a language and uh, like a written record. And uh, that written record actually talks about the sea level going up by about 300 feet. And that's an event that took place about 11,000 years ago. So, you know, that considerably uh, predates. And, and you, I mean, you got things like tree rings. Uh, not very far from where I live here, there's a tree that's 13,000 years old where you can actually see 13,000 uh, tree rings. Or you look at Ice Age uh, cores, which reveal layers laid down every year uh, that go down one million layers. And uh, we know those are annual layers because many of the layers contain the dust signature of volcanic eruptions that have taken place in recorded history. So in Ken Ham's book, in one of his books, he says that, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the exact exact stat, but something like 80% of the youth that leave the church. So 80% of the whatever percentage leave the church leave because they can't see how the scientific data can be reconciled with a young earth view. And it makes all the sense in the world to me to approach them the same way that we would approach these Chinese by explaining that their worldview is not in conflict with scripture. Am I wrong? No, you're exactly right, and I've seen numerous youth uh, just express tremendous relief uh, that they don't have to choose between nature and between the Bible, that they can actually have the two uh, come together. And so, yeah, recognizing that they don't have to believe that the universe is less than 6,000 years old, uh, you know, that takes a huge weight off their shoulder, and now they realize, hey, you know, I can be a faithful Christian, I can have a high view of the Bible and a high view of science, and I don't have to be embarrassed by either. All right, so what you're getting at here is not what some would describe as an evolutionary Trojan horse trying to get into Christianity. You're really describing for us an evangelistic pursuit where you're trying to reach out to those that don't know Jesus to provide them with the evidence that would answer some of their questions and objections so that they could find the Savior. Is that your motivation? Yes, and the evidence for that is just look how we're being attacked by theistic evolutionists. I mean, uh, you know, I've written books uh, about, uh, you know, the young earth, old earth issue, but we're also involved in writing books on uh, whether or not uh, God uses an evolutionary process. So the fact that we're on record as engaging people who disagree with us, but I will say this, the theistic evolutionists we've been engaging uh, have been engaging us in a spirit of charity. So uh, that's been different from the debate we've had uh, with uh, young earth creationists. Uh, but the fact is, there is a third position. Often Christians are told, you either have to be young earth or you have to be theistic evolution. Well, we're neither. Uh, we believe that God creates, uh, but he created over a time span of billions of years. There's not just a few miracles, there's millions of miracles that we can document in the book of nature. Great. Well, thanks for answering some of those kind of tougher questions and some of the questions that you probably get hit with a lot of the time. And again, from the perspective of this show, I try to keep a humble approach, and it's very, very uplifting, I think, to hear someone that is willing to state their case and to do it with science and to do it with Scripture and to do it with humility, and I see that in your approach. So thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, now shifting again to a more personal note. Will you please describe your struggle with being a husband, father, and scientist on the autism spectrum? 
Well, the big struggle was I didn't even realize I was on the spectrum until a little more than a decade ago. Uh, but uh, as a child, I realized I was different. And as a child, I began to make a commitment to do what I could to uh, deal with my handicaps. So I forced myself into public speaking while I was still a teenager and uh, you know, did what I could to engage people so I could learn how to do uh, some social interaction. Uh, the woman I married, she taught me how to get eye contact with people, something I still struggle with. So what I tell people who are high-functioning uh, uh, on the autistic spectrum is that if you work on it and get help from people uh, who are neurotypical, you can overcome, at least to some degree, some of your social handicaps. But for me personally, my biggest struggle is when my sons were between, say, the age of uh, 6 and uh, 20. Uh, when they were little, uh, I, I was fine. Uh, you know, it's, babies are pretty clear telling you what they want. Their emotions aren't hard to read. And uh, now that my sons are in their 20s, they understand some of the handicaps I'm dealing with, and uh, they've been much more compassionate towards me, so we've had a, a much better understanding. But I can remember when they were teenagers, it's like, you know, they would go to my wife and say, you know, how come Dad's always got a scowl on his face? And she'd have to explain to him, well, he actually has to think, to smile. Uh, smiling doesn't come to him naturally. And so I've had to train myself to, you know, uh, get away from that scowl. And the scowl basically is when I'm just deep in thought. And so I've had to train myself away from that. But my son's got the idea maybe I was angry at them when I wasn't angry at all. And uh, yeah, they expected me to be able to read their emotions. And uh, so they would come home from school, and they didn't have a clue how they were feeling, and uh, they would get upset. But uh, now that they're in their 20s, it's gotten a lot better. Wow. So what advice would you have for people dealing with whatever issues they're dealing with in the audience today? So we've talked a lot about evidence for belief in Jesus Christ and for faith in Jesus Christ. And the reality is he is the truth and the way, and he is our only hope of salvation Yet, many Christians live daily with all sorts of different afflictions that Scripture tells us God can use for his good and theirs. What advice would you have for those people listening today that have who knows what ailment that they live daily with? Well, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we're all cracked jars. We all got defects. We all got handicaps. They're different for each one of us. And the human temptation is to cover up the cracks. And in 2 Corinthians 4, we're told that as believers, we're to allow God's Holy Spirit to shine through the cracks. So rather than trying to hide our weaknesses or patch them over so people can't see them, uh, we need to let God's grace shine through those weaknesses. And recognize, too, that uh, you know, with every handicap, there's a gift. So, for example, I tell parents who have children on the autistic spectrum, there's a gift there. You need to help your child find that gift and also try to help them deal with the handicaps. Uh, but it's amazing how many people I've seen reach for Christ uh, through my handicaps as opposed to through my gifts. And, you know, that's the Spirit of God at work. And so, you know, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal himself. So that one chapter has helped me more than almost any other chapter in the New Testament, Second Corinthians 4. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Before you go, where can people find more about you? Reasons.org. Uh, that's our website. And I also maintain a personal uh, Twitter site. 
and a Facebook site. That's true of all of the scholars that have reasons to believe. And I use my uh, Facebook page to kind of keep you up to date on the latest ministry developments of reasons to believe. And I use my uh, Twitter site uh, to give you links to research papers uh, that are giving us more evidence for the Christian faith. Now, if people go to reasons.org and click on the microphone, am I correct to state that they can get your testimony for free? They'll get my story of how uh, astronomy brought me to faith in Christ eight years before I got to know Christians. That's available as a free gift uh, just by going to reasons.org and clicking on that microphone. Wonderful. Are there any other resources or sites you'd like to share with the audience? Well, again, I'd like to tell people that uh, each of our scientists uh, has uh, both a Twitter site uh, and a Facebook page. Check it out, because all of us are pumping out new reasons to believe literally on a daily basis. And yes, there's many other very good apologetic ministries out there. Uh, all you do is put a, uh, you know, Christian apologetics into a search engine, uh, they'll pop up. And I think particularly the last 10 years, we've seen the development of quite a few uh, outstanding ministries out there. Some of my fail, like Robbie Zacharias International Ministry, uh, I really appreciate that Rocio Christie is using apologetics to reach out on the university campus. And this is something we do at Reasons to Believe. We partner with other apologetic ministries. We need to work together. So what final words would you have for someone who is considering the claims of the Bible, but they're reluctant to pursue Christ because of a supposed conflict between faith and science? Check it out. The Bible tells us that uh, we're to read the book of nature and we're to read the book of Scripture. So, uh, you know, don't be afraid. Uh, in fact, I would say to the Christian, if you read the Bible, it commands you to be a scientist. It also commands you to be a theologian. So study the Bible and study nature and see how they come together. I say the same thing for the unbeliever. Uh, check it out. Before you reject the Bible, you need to at least uh, read it and see what it's got to say. And also, don't just look at one scientific discipline, look at multiple disciplines. Often I run to the scientists and say, I think I see a challenge here to the Christian faith, but all they're looking at is one narrow sub-discipline. They need to look at all the disciplines. They'll see an integrated truth. I guess Antony Flew is a perfect example of that, the most famous atheist of the last century before Dawkins, and he came to believe in God through a lot of the intelligent design arguments, specifically concerning biology. So he was kind of looking in a different field, so I'm glad he looked there. Any final words that you'd like to share? Yeah, once again, uh, if you're looking for evidence, origin of life, origin of the universe, origin of humanity, and the design of the earth and universe for the benefit of human life, it will reveal not only that God exists, but it's a good God that wants to reward people who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11.6. Well, thanks so much for being on the God Solution Show, Dr. Ross, and we'll look forward to keeping in touch with you and maybe having you again sometime. Yeah, that would be my pleasure. Thank you. Keep up the fight, and we'll keep in touch. That sounds great. All right. Blessing on you. Take you care. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm glad you heard the interview with Dr. Ross. Again, you can find out more about him at reasons.org, and you can look him up at Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram, and you can get his free testimony by clicking the microphone on reasons.org. Well, all of this means something. Jesus really did die for your sins, and he rose again, conquering death, so that you could have a relationship with God today. If you know you're a sinner and you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, asking him to be your Savior and Lord, you can do that right now, verbalizing that through faith. 
saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord, to make me the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you for conquering death so that I could look forward to a life of meaning and purpose with you on this planet and an eternity with you in heaven. I hope that you prayed that if you haven't before. I hope that you made that commitment today, that you took that step to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. That's just the beginning, though. I hope that you would take the next steps and grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. You can go to godsolutionshow.com and click the Churches tab and find a local church to visit this weekend. It would be a great way to take your next step in your walk with God. I'm so glad that you're listening to the show, and if you already know Jesus Christ, I pray that you keep growing closer to him. Well, the show this week was interesting. If you disagree, let me know. Use the contact form at godsolutionshow.com. Remember, keep that humble perspective that we talked about. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that if you haven't found him already, you will, and that if you already know him, that you'll grow closer to him now than ever before. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week for another great interview. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.